Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Singletracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get a free Singletracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Nico Malali. Nico is a professional downhill mountain bike racer and three-time U.S. national champion. He's also the founder of Wind Rock Bike Park in Tennessee and is currently part of the Intense Downhill Factory Racing Team. Thanks for joining me, Nico. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be on here. So you got started mountain biking and racing mountain bikes, actually, at age 13. How did you find your passion at such an early age? Yeah, um, my dad was actually into mountain biking, and he got my brother and I into the sport. Um, He was in, like, the 90s, I think, like, 97, 98 time. He kind of traveled out west and did the full downhill series with them so he was into mountain biking and um he got my brother and i into bmx at first we uh we we both kind of wanted to do motocross or ride motorcycles of some some sort and bmx was a good Mm -hmm. way to kind of get our get our skills down before we got on the motorcycles so um we got into bmx and and felt like I, i think i was like six or seven and of all the sports that i'd done at that age i was I felt like I was naturally good at BMX. I think I won one of the first races I entered, and then I just oh, kind of wow. thought that that was my thing because I did well at mm-hmm. it. So I wanted to continue racing BMX, and um, I did it for five or six years until I was, I think right before I started racing downhill. So until I was 11 or 12, I raced BMX, and I wasn't. my family wasn't as into it as, as some are, but we did all mm-hmm. the regional races, um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, so we had a few tracks in Pennsylvania that we would go to regularly, and um, I just liked I just liked racing BMX because I was competitive. But at a, when when I got old enough to understand a little bit more, I didn't like the head-to-head mm-hmm. racing as much. And when I tried downhill, mm-hmm. I really liked it because it was more against the we're not, or not against working with the mountain and the clock and. Um, mm-hmm. it was more individual. You could be friends with the guys you were racing against. And if, if they beat you is because they were better, um, BMX, mm. you could, uh, get, cut somebody off and it was oh, more right. like bar to bar, which in some ways I, I kind of liked it when I was a kid, but it would just became like mm-hmm. not a cool scene, I guess, at the track. Like it, it, you didn't get to ride very much. If you mm. went to a BMX national, you might be there all day and do three or four laps around the track so you didn't ride your bike very mm-hmm. much and you kind of wanted to kill all the people you're racing against where in mountain biking <laughs> it was much more welcoming and friendly and i guess at the time it would be 2006 when i started riding that was my first downhill race i mm-hmm. they, they started building like 
jumps and and machine built features into the tracks that was like a new thing mm -hmm. at that time and coming from bmx i could do all the jumps so when i started racing downhill i was pretty good at that right away because i was better at jumping than some of the other people that had just been in downhill so um mm -hmm. that kind of gave me a little bit of an edge and then yeah i just didn't i enjoyed it and um that's kind of like once i did my first downhill race i don't think i ever did a pmx race again until i was older and just went <laughs> back for fun but um yeah that's kind of how i got started yeah and you were just out at sea otter uh just last week uh at the races and you got second place uh how was that racing there yeah it was cool i hadn't been to sea otter and since 2013 so it'd be like eight years ago um but that mm -hmm. that's always a big race in the u.s and when i was first getting into pro racing I, I would go to sea otter every spring and it was like a big date on the calendar for for american riders and once i got into world cup racing mm -hmm. it was often conflicting or like you just got back from a trip to europe and the last thing you wanted to do is go on another trip so yeah it's been a while since right. i was at sea otter but it was so cool to go back there and it, it being in the fall this year was more laid back um I was, hmm. the racing is not maybe as important because the track isn't as gnarly as a regular downhill track. So mm -hmm. racing is kind of like a, an extra thing to the expo there, but there's tons of, uh, industry and, and fans. So it was cool to race and do well in the race and, uh, see, see everybody there. And a lot of the sponsors that support you through the season are, are there more than world cups. So when they see you in person hmm. and do well, even though it's kind of a smaller race it's definitely a good thing yeah yeah that makes sense and like i guess at sea otter do they still do four cross i mean it sounds like your bmx experience makes you kind of like not interested in doing that but um seems like sea otter is one of the few places where they still do four cross or or are they still doing it um i don't think they've done it in the past couple of years slalom is the big thing now and it's oh, all right. super fun because it's it's just like four cross but it's not head to head so well it's head to head but it, you can't you, there's no contact it's just who can turn the quickest <laughs> yeah so um i didn't do it this year because i just i just was gonna do the downhill i kind of went on my own to that race and um didn't want to just have too busy a schedule this year it was it was cool to like see a mm -hmm. lot of the sp sponsors and, and industry especially in california that i hadn't seen for really two years that haven't been able to like mm. a lot of industry people can't travel and like their company won't let them so um it was cool to right. see all those people and i didn't want to just have too busy a schedule but seattle's definitely a big one and hopefully uh, i think seattle's in the spring again next year which is its normal date so i'll um i'll try to do it next year yeah that would be awesome well, I read that your first mountain bike race was at Snowshoe in West Virginia. And I know you've also raced there a number of times over your career, most recently for the final two rounds of the 2021 World Cup downhill season. What was it like racing such a big event on those familiar trails for you? Oh, it was super cool. We um, Our season was cut short the past two years. Um, just big mm -hmm. events in Europe were getting canceled and, uh, it's been a shorter schedule than normal. So to make up for it, they had a double header at the final round, which is a snowshoe. So to, to get to race twice in front of all the U S fans was so cool. Like mm -hmm. I think I said, U S fans are worth like 
one one U.S. fans worth four European fans because they yell so loud, <laughs> especially for the American riders. So it's so yeah. cool to to race and like there's so many people there and um, it, it, I, there's so many American fans. It's the number one country that watches the Red Bull TV broadcast for downhill. So to have a race here is mm. is makes sense. Like in the past, there was yeah. there was races in Europe only for so many years and we'd go to Mount St. Anne, um, in Quebec, but we needed a U.S. round. Like we hadn't had one since mm-hmm. Wyndham quite a while ago. So to bring snowshoe back, like props to snowshoe for putting on that race. It's a ton of work and a, sometimes difficult for, a, for a resort to justify having one of those races. Cause there's a lot of work and, and expense mm-hmm. involved, but they love mountain biking and it shows their commitment to it. So it's awesome that snowshoe brought that race back to the U S and they're on the schedule for the next three years as well. So it's awesome yeah. to have that and hopefully more fans in the Southeast can get out and see a race in person. Yeah. Yeah. I was there and that was the first time I've seen a, a world cup race in person. And yeah, I mean, it was like, you were like the, the local favorite, right? It was like, it's like, oh, the local guys coming down, and yeah, I definitely you could feel it. Like the people on the course were really stoked to see you, you know, as an American and and somebody who's like raced there and has a lot of history there. Um, yeah, it was super exciting to see. Yeah, it was cool, and there's there's quite a few of us now from the southeast. We got Luca, who lives just a mile down the road from me. Chris Grice, who's right here in in pretty much the same distance from my house so we got a little crew here in in uh Brevard and then Dakota lives in Knoxville so we've got like a bunch of good U.S. riders from the area and it was yeah I think the fans were stoked to see us all racing out there in person I stopped on the side of the track in practice just because like in practice sometimes you split the course so you can not do a full run and burn too much energy mm-hmm. and I like couldn't even think they're people were just yelling so loud for the two <laughs> minutes that I stopped to like catch my breath yeah. and look at a line huh. like they're just yelling at me so it was it was rad that was super cool yeah yeah that's awesome well yeah you mentioned that sort of the downhill race scene in the southeast in particular is growing and a big part of that is five years ago you and Sean Leader opened Windrock bike park outside Knoxville. What have you learned through the experience of building and operating a bike park? Man, that was, I learned a lot doing that and in, in, <laughs> in a bunch of different ways, like business wise and, um, mm-hmm. bike park wise and industry wise. Like, yeah, I, I, I didn't go to college. I finished high school and had already been like missing a lot of school to go to Europe and race. So, as soon as I finished school, I pretty much just moved down to North Carolina so I could ride year round and mm-hmm. just wasn't interested in, in going to college. So when I started the bike park, that was kind of like, I feel like in a lot of ways, my education, like I just jumped into it. Mm. Um, Sean and I had put all of our own money in to make it happen. And we had, we had to like stretch the dollar pretty far because we couldn't ask for budget like, when we ran out of our money that we just didn't have anymore (laughs) and if we weren't selling a lot of lift tickets then we didn't have any money to run the park so Mm -hmm. we we kind of had to do it well and it taught us pretty quick how to balance everything and and um and run a business like that um 
it's awesome that Cole Creek, who's the company that owns the property at Windrock Off-Road, they gave us the opportunity. Like, I was maybe 23 then and um, mm-hmm. didn't have much experience, you could say, with doing something like this. Uh, would yeah. be credible from racing as a pro rider. But they they were just really excited to work with us and, and allow us to put this bike park in with not a lot of restriction. So to have that chance mm. to, like, go to a mountain and learn on the go um, without having like certified trail building classes or have, <laughs> have like a ton of experience trail building. Like we, they just let us mm-hmm. kind of tear into it. And we learned pretty quick, like instead of reading a handbook that said, you need a water bar every hundred feet, you can't have a grade <laughs> steeper than this. Like it, the stuff we made either was good or washed out and we didn't want it to wash out anymore. So we figured out how to make it not wash out. And like the trails were either fun or not. So we changed them. Like it was very learn on the fly. And mm-hmm. we were, we were pretty good judges of our own work. So like if it, if we didn't like it, we just redid it and changed it. It wasn't like we were doing it mm. and leaving and, or doing like a trail building right. job for somebody else that, that we wouldn't see again. So being mm-hmm. like operating the bike park, we just like, I don't know. My, my vision was to make, like I've ridden a ton of places around the world and I wanted to make the stuff that I liked, like the best of each kind of place that I've been and take it back and, um, build it into a bike park. And really, I just wanted to have a place that I could train and ride. And if the thought was mm-hmm. like, Hey, if we make this into a bike park, then we'll be able to make it an even better training facility for myself. But by like creating the experience for other people that are going to use it too, they can all pitch in and like buy their pass, which is, it's not a donation. Like they're getting the day of riding, like the experience that they get is, is the value of their live pass. And we can use that money to improve Mm -hmm. the whole place. So it was like a very good win-win situation of how we can kind of make a bike park and get it off the ground without having a ton of upfront expense and overhead. And it was a ton of work in yeah. the beginning. Like Sean and I pretty much did everything. Sean, Sean's from Knoxville. So he did a lot more than me, I'd say, as far as, um, on the ground work. Um, and, mm-hmm. and kind of the way it, it, it was working well, because I was a pro rider and people came there and trusted my word that it was going to be good. So like I attracted people to come and, um, mm-hmm. and kind of laid out a lot of the trails and knew knew what stuff we needed that would be fun to ride and um sean did a ton of the operations work so it was uh yeah it ran great um i'm actually uh, for the past two years i have not been involved with the bike park i just passed my ownership on to sean because it was it was kind of getting to be a lot on my plate and it was um it's Windrock's <laughs> yeah. two and a half hours away from Brevard. So I would go over there and every time I would go to ride, I would also have like a few things that I would want to do to improve just the whole function of everything or fill a truck up with fuel or fix a broken vehicle. Or, mm-hmm. There was just lots of little things. And, and I felt like we had gotten the park over the hump to where like I could feel good to walk away from it and it was going to continue mm-hmm. to progress. In the beginning, I felt a little bit like if I stepped away, it might not it might not succeed. So uh, mm-hmm. at the moment it's great because I go to Windrock all the time, so several days a week and I show up, there's a shuttle running literally every day except for Christmas and I can oh, put wow. my bike on it and go ride and not have to do anything. So I pretty much, <laughs> I think it, it worked <laughs> out exactly the way I wanted to. 
Yeah, free pass for life. And yeah, I mean, like you said, the the park is amazing. I mean, there's races there. Um, I, you know, I live in Atlanta and I have lots of friends that travel up there to ride and, and always have a good time. And yeah, I mean, it's really cool. It's interesting that you had all this experience as a rider um, and then then got into sort of building trail. Did that experience help you as a rider? Like, were you able to learn some things uh, from building trail or, or did it go the other way where because you were a rider, you knew kind of how to build things? Um, I'd say more so being a rider, I knew how to, not necessarily how to build them, but I had the vision for what I wanted to build. So mm -hmm. like I said, if it wasn't right, we just redid it and fixed it until it was right. I think with anything, like if you have the vision to know exactly what it is that you want, like you can figure out how to use tools to make it. So that's pretty much what like mm -hmm. shovel, a pick and excavator was all just like tools. And mm -hmm. I, I knew what we needed to make and we eventually figured out how to do it and then got quicker and refined the process of doing it. So yeah, I'd say that has helped more and just more the experience of like going to a lot of places, going to Europe, um, riding trails mm. that a lot of trail builders here only get to see like one style where I've been mm -hmm. and riding in like pretty much every continent. So I, I, um, I can take that experience back and like show different styles of trail. And I think mm -hmm. that, yeah, a lot of trail building these days is, is, so, I don't know, and I, I don't consider myself a trail builder, so I don't want to be in like any kind yeah. of trail building war. Cause I think there is a little bit of that going on <laughs> between different people, Definitely. but I just see a lot yep. of like generic trails and I like to build stuff. That's like more of a variety. Like it can be raw and it can be natural and it can be like unfinished trail, which is what I like to ride. Mm -hmm. And then you can throw a berm to carry some speed into the next section. So it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be like all machine built three feet wide, um, compacted, like that's one style of trail. Then there's like just raking rides. And what I like is like a mix of it all really. Like those are the mm. most fun to me is to like throw a variety of sections. And that's kind of what a downhill track yeah. is. Like there's man, mm -hmm. man or machine built jumps. There's just raw sections. There's hard braking zones. Like it's, it's all sorts of different terrain and obstacles mm -hmm. on a downhill track and to put that onto like trails that are a little bit more tamed down that public can ride i think just kind of makes it more fun like it is different obstacles mm -hmm. and some i don't know it just makes it more exciting I, I like it when you have to really ride the bike instead of like a lot of trails are they're fun and they're like a roller coaster you just stand on the bike and it takes you down <laughs> some pretty fast flowy stuff and th that stuff's cool mm -hmm. to ride but I like to like have to like ride the bike rather than um, the trail just do all the work. So I guess that's my yeah. style, but yeah, that taught me a lot. And then on the flip side, I guess, yeah, I can look at tracks maybe a little differently. Um, knowing where stuff's going to cut up, like at world cups, you always get breaking bumps or big holes that mm -hmm. may not be there on track walk, but by race time when a bunch of people have ridden the track deteriorates. So I guess through trail building, like you can kind of see where that stuff's going to happen sooner maybe. Mm. And, mm -hmm. um, just have like a good strategy through the weekend practicing. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe trail building's taken more of my rest away from me than anything is the main, is the <laughs> downside to it. Right. 
Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you enjoy riding a variety of trails. Um, and you know, with downhill, a lot of times we kind of associate that with park and, you know, kind of lift serviced terrain and stuff. So I'm curious to know when you're not riding park and when you're not riding Windrock, where do you like to ride? Do you have like a favorite trail uh, that you, you like to train on or, or just go ride for fun? Yeah, I, um, well, I live like 10 minutes from the ranger station in Brevard. So that's pretty much my go-to. Um, a lot of the training mm. that I do for downhill is on a trail bike or an enduro bike. So I do a lot of riding in Pisgah and I have a hard time driving past the intersection at the, at the <laughs> ranger station to go somewhere else to ride because I know that it's good and it's mm -hmm. right there. And like, honestly, it's kind of like work almost to get these rides in that are on my training plan. So I, I know what I'm going to mm -hmm. get there and I don't often stray too far from that, but, mm -hmm. um, Pisgah is my favorite. I just love riding in there. Um, I've gone up to like Wilson Creek a couple of times, um, in the off season and the riding up there is kind of similar to the riding here in Brevard, but just mm -hmm. a little bit less traffic. So it's, uh, it's more single track and softer and, um, just like more remote. So I love riding up there mm. too. But I'd say these two are my go-tos. And it's Pisgah is yeah. like pretty fun, and it's it's hard and technical riding, so um, it's good practice for downhill anyway. Yeah, for sure. Well, you have a tradition of raffling off your World Cup race bike at the end of the season to raise money for a nonprofit supporting kids and bikes. Um, interested to learn a little bit more about the program. Tell us a bit about it and what the funding goes toward. Yeah, for sure. That was um, something that I did in 2018 to start with. And mm -hmm. I guess like as a World Cup rider, the brands or the teams that I've ridden for have often made me custom painted bikes for world champs. It's a pretty popular thing that like almost all the pro race teams do. And it makes mm -hmm. sense. Like they spend a little bit of design time and, and get another bike painted that's going to get a ton of, ton of publicity and photos taken mm -hmm. of it. It's like, mm -hmm. it's a good marketing move for the, for the brands to do. And I've got probably three or four of them still in my basement, just kind of like collecting dust. Um, <laughs> uh, th there's really only like one or two that's kind of sentimental to me. But, um, I just thought like, man, it'd be cool to like do something more with these. Like, of course I like them and I like, I don't take it for granted that they give those bikes to me, but at the end of the day, it's mm -hmm. like, it's just another bike after a couple of years. And, um, it'd be cool to like do something more with it. So I had the mm -hmm. idea to, to raffle the bike off and all the money raised, give back to, um, the, for the first two years I did it, I gave it to canned aid, which is Oscar blues non for profit. Mm -hmm. And I was sponsored by Oscar blues the, in 2018. So, they were, that's kind of what sparked the idea was they, um, were asking if I could help to do like clinics or maybe like a clinic that you like have to pay like a couple bucks to do and use the money to give back mm -hmm. to Candade. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I'd be glad to like do the clinic, but to do a clinic to like, for like a $5 clinic to like raise money, like <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's going to have like that big of an impact. <laughs> like uh, yeah. not that I'm too good to do it, but like we could do something that maybe is 
easier and raises more money. So I was like, Hey, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm get, I get these bikes every year anyway. Like they already generate a bunch of publicity. If I raffle it off, it'll get even more publicity for the brand and like all those component mm-hmm. sponsors that make like matching parts to put on it. We'll get like more photos out there about it. And, um, we'll just sell like a $20 raffle ticket and give all the money back mm-hmm. to your non for profit. <clears throat> so it worked out great. Like the first two years I raised $25,000 each time. Wow. And, um, and that, and what we did was bought bikes and helmets for first grade students that were in like, I guess they call it underserved areas. So like, um, mm-hmm. areas where like the kids don't, maybe there's like a lower income or something. And, um, we, we went to this, like, I went to two of them with them and it was so cool. Like all the kids came out and I told them a little bit about biking. And then we like surprised them by saying that they were going to get a bike to keep. And the kids were so stoked. Like they, uh, rode them around the playground and like, they were just really, really happy about it. So mm-hmm. it was pretty cool to see that, like the kids actually get the bikes. And then we did, um, when Oscar Bluth owned the rebrand here by DuPont, we did a clinic where all the kids could bring them out and we taught them how to ride the pump track and everything. And that was pretty oh, cool. cool to see them like using the bikes more. And, um, the riveter, the dirt jump and climbing gym that just opened here in, um, mm-hmm. in Asheville that I was out there riding and there was a couple kids with the bikes like a year later. The, and, and these are pretty like mm-hmm. low end kids bikes and they were still there. They, they took them out there to ride them. Wow. So I was like, man, that's so cool that, that's um, awesome. they're still into it. So I, I thought it, it made a difference. And, but anyway, this year I'm doing it again, but instead of doing it with Candade, I'm doing it myself and I'm going to be buying a higher end fleet of bikes. So like those bikes were okay. basically a hundred bucks for a bike and a helmet. And so when we raised 25 grand, we got 250 kids bikes, which, which had like a big impact to a lot of people, but mm-hmm. they were, they were like, their first bike maybe they were very basic bikes so this Mm -hmm. year what we're going to do is buy like real high-end mountain bikes and um we're going to do it at canuga and potentially other bike parks that want to participate and keep like maybe Mm -hmm. a fleet of like five to ten nicer bikes the bikes will be in a system like just like the rental bikes and kids can apply into the program. Maybe I'll make them like write an essay just to like paragraph why they want to do it. And of course, like we'll accept everyone and just make it so that they have like some barrier of entry. They have to show interest. And once mm-hmm. they do that, then they're in the program and they can, they can book their time slot to use the bike on whatever day they want to use it just like a rental, but they don't have to pay for it mm-hmm. and they don't have to pay to ride oh, at the cool. parks either if they get accepted into the program. So, um, yeah, I think it's a cool way to like, give back, but also teach the next generation of kids. Like if they really want a bike, if they really want a mountain bike, they can do it. Like it's not uh, the money that's going to hold them back from it. They just mm-hmm. need to show that they're interested and um, the opportunity will be there. So um, also for like every, I, I don't know, we're going to make some sort of time limit. Like if they use for every five days, they ride the bike, they need to spend mm-hmm. an hour learning how to do maintenance on it or um maybe uh, like yeah. a day doing some trail work just and, and like i'm not trying to like get anything in return i'm just trying to help them to be like good <laughs> stewards of mountain biking teach them the yeah. teach them the right way like it, like all they have to invest is their time to come out and 
and participate and then hopefully we can teach them to uh to be like good future ambassadors of the sport yeah yeah that's that's a really interesting area for sure i mean the first round it sounds like yeah you're able to reach a lot of kids and also it's it's funny that you saw some of those bikes a year later people were still riding them i wonder if the person who ended up getting your downhill bike in the raffle i wonder if they're still riding that bike or if they ever did i don't know maybe it's in a museum or something but yeah, yeah. i saw i saw one of them at windrock actually and i oh, said yeah. to the dude like i was on the shuttle i was like it was i obviously knew it because it was a custom painted yt with my name on the side <laughs> i was like hey dude nice bike and i think it was like a muddy yeah. day a rain jacket or something on and he was like oh thanks i actually won this bike in a raffle and i was like yeah i know <laughs> i'm nico and he was like oh yeah. dude no, it's so so it was funny and yeah. then the guy who won it the second year the intense that i raffled off it was actually that was a super cool story too because he had he was into downhill in the 90s and then he got really sick he had cancer and didn't really ride for a long time and he won the bike and then took it out to big bear and rode it so i was like oh it's kind oh, of wow. a cool story too that the guy who won the bike was like <laughs> not really into the sport and kind of had struggled through some tough times and then he got the bike and it kind of rekindled um riding for him again so yeah. i thought that was pretty neat as well like on, on yeah, multiple levels all. like honestly it's not been a ton of work for me like it's a little bit of admin to set it all up um, and mm -hmm. to like line it all up and promote it. And sometimes like as a rider, you feel like you're just constantly like almost selling something to try to like get people to, <laughs> right. to buy a raffle ticket for it. And like, you don't yeah. want to be like, I, I don't want to identify with like, I'm the guy that just does the like giveaways and like, I'm a good person because I do this. Like I, <laughs> honestly, I just want it yeah. to have as big of an impact as it can. And sometimes it mm -hmm. feels like a little bit of uh pressure to like do all the fundraising and, and make it all happen. But, um, it's, mm -hmm. it's really not that much work and like to see it have such an impact is really gratifying. And, um, I'm just stoked that what for one, like kids can, can experience what I love about mountain biking themselves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that a couple of people have gotten to win the bike and, um, kind of been seeing them enjoy riding on the bike yeah. that, that I was given. So pretty cool. Yeah, it's a win all around. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about money, Nico's relationship with crashing, and preparing for competition. Stay tuned. Are you enjoying the Single Tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated Single Tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures. Through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos, and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly, annual, or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad-free browsing on the website, free single track stickers in the mail, and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com support. Thank you and happy trails. And we're back. So Nico, I was Googling you before this interview to prepare. And one of those like suggested search queries was Nico Malali net worth. 
So I want to ask you, why do you think people are so interested in how much professional mountain bikers earn? And did money play into your decision to pursue a career in racing? <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, should be Nico Malali, uh net debt. Because <laughs> racing costs money. And yeah. I spent all my money making a bike park and, I don't know, doing all these other stuff that we do. Like, uh, mm -hmm. I also do the Downhill Southeast series and that has just like cost money for mm -hmm. many years. So, um, it's funny. Like I definitely, I don't know why people would search that. I, uh, I, I can say now that like I'm 28 years old and I've been competing professionally for 10 years and I'm live a very, I'm, I'm like very, uh, grateful to live a good life and have a mm -hmm. nice house here in Brevard and get to, um, pretty much make my own schedule and go mm -hmm. ride every day. But, um, I, I definitely am not like raking in the dough. So <laughs> I'm, I'm able to live a good life here and kind of do whatever I want and not worry about, worry about money too much. Like, um, it's off season now and it's me and my buddies ride motocross a lot in the off season. So I can uh -huh. I'm like fortunate enough that I can go down to the dealership and buy a new bike and not have to like stress about that too much, but mm -hmm. definitely don't have a sports car. Don't really ever desire <laughs> to have one, even if I did have a lot of money <laughs> or right. like, um, I, I set up my spot here in Brevard. Um, I built my house like five years ago now and have like got it dialed in to where we've got like a pretty cool bike workshop in the basement. I've got a gym, mm -hmm. I've got like everything I need and I'm a couple minutes from the trails. So, uh, don't really ever have a desire to like move house either because I've like mm -hmm. set my spot up here and it's dialed in now. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why people are interested in the, in the money part of it. It's not really <laughs> ever been an interest to me. Like I've always been like, Oh, I need to make enough money. Like this is all the things that I'm going to do this year. I need to make enough money to like cover being able to go do all that stuff. And mm -hmm. then on, on the back end, like I need to obviously like eat well and be able to, to go to the physio appointments that cost money, have a trainer, have all the stuff that mm -hmm. I need. Um, and then like some things that I'd like to have like a van and dirt bikes and stuff like that. And, and then be able to have enough money to um, not worry about bills and stuff. So that's pretty mm -hmm. much like what I look at when I need to make my budget, but I definitely don't like, I don't think money is like a driving thing for me. It's more that I want to have like enough money to have time to do the things I want more mm -hmm. than anything. And I, I'd say most people involved with mountain biking are probably along the same lines. Like mm -hmm. if you wanted to make a lot of money, you should definitely go into a different industry and don't have anything to do with <laughs> mountain biking because yeah. <laughs> it's not really a, an industry you're going to get, get rich in. Um, right. There's some riders that, that like top guys, like, um, my teammate, Aaron Gwynn, he's, um, mm -hmm. done really well for himself, but he's like five time world cup overall champ. So, um, he's, <laughs> he's got the results and he's like won 20 world cups. And, um, so he, he can, he can command a lot more salary than, mm -hmm. than a lot of other guys. But, um, yeah, I'd say it's not made really any difference for me wanting to get into the sport was, um, making money or, or like the hopes of one day, like just having like a big salary. Like I, I just wanted mm -hmm. to go and more with like the, the deals that I've gotten in for, for race teams or whatever it was, it was like, firstly, I want to have the best equipment. So is the team going to be able to provide me that? 
Secondly, I mm. want to have the best support. So what does this team staff and structure look like? And then mm -hmm. after that, like if the money is good, like of a good salary for what I, the value I provide, then, then awesome. But it's like the third mm -hmm. thing on the list, um, when I'm looking at sponsorships and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, that's, I don't know. I don't, I don't think, um, <laughs> net worth and mountain biking should really be searched in the same thing. Cause you're not going to find like. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. It's, those are two different things. I mean, right. Do you want a fun career or do you want a career that makes a lot of money? And, you know, unfortunately, those are often two different things. And I just imagine, you know, the, the person who's who's Googling that is like a middle school boy who like just doesn't doesn't know any better. And obviously, you know, they look up to racers like you and are like, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. Like, could I make a career out of it? And, you know, you're proof that you definitely can, but yeah, the money, money can't be the most important part of that for sure. You got to do it because you love it. Do you think today's young mountain bike athletes have advantages or opportunities you didn't have when you were starting out? There's more equipment that's sized for younger riders. There's a lot of kids bikes mm -hmm. out, good bikes, downhill bikes, enduro bikes, even e-bikes now that are like 24, 26 inch small bikes that are like fit for kids so mm -hmm. when i started like I, I just rode a size small like big bike and like i think i was okay. 14 the first year where i took it seriously and mm -hmm. um and i raced in and junior expert like 18 and under so i was racing kids that were like wait i got that age like 18 year old kids way bigger than 14 year old kids so <laughs> yeah in some ways i think that like made me tougher and made me have to like rise to the higher level mm -hmm. um, as well when I was junior in World Cup like 17 and 18 is a UCI junior age and when I was racing there was no junior category you raced in the elite category you qualified into the elite final and there was only really like three or four juniors that were trying to do that and now they have a junior mm. category a junior race totally separate and there's like a lot of the races, there's 50 or 60 kids doing it. So in some ways, there's more opportunity. And in other ways, it's like I had to go through a tougher road. So it made me stronger by doing that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm not really sure. Like, I, I guess if you can get more kids interested because there's more opportunity, the ones who are always going to be good will rise higher or maybe to the top. And maybe mm -hmm. kids that wouldn't have gotten into it because there wasn't as much of a path they they never would have seen mountain biking and and this got them into it and then they were able to progress and take mm. off from there so it's hard to say which is better like there's the trails are like there's a lot of easier beginner trails now um you go to like bike mm -hmm. park most bike like discount Windrock from this, but you go to bike parks and they're like <laughs> mainly flow trails that are fun and easy. And, um, mm -hmm. th there's just like an easier barrier of entry. You don't have to be like a super skilled rider to do it for the first time. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not sure if that's like, it either like makes it so that people have to be better to start. Like when, when it was, when I started or it makes more people mm -hmm. get into it and then, yeah, you start with a with a wider base, but the the peaks even higher of the couple guys that are at the top. So I don't know. 
it's yeah could go either way but it's it's cool to see more people riding and more people into the sport um i just hope that with those easier barriers of entry it doesn't take away from like being like i said like a good ambassador of mountain biking like you don't want to see people out there mm-hmm. who have no respect or um understanding really of what they're doing um mm-hmm. so hopefully like through all this the people the, the new riders and stuff still take the time to be yeah good yeah good mountain bikers and not give us all a bad name <laughs> ripping by people on <laughs> right. bikes with gym shorts on <laughs> walking the <Yeah>. dog <laughs> might not be a good look but i think it's not a problem with mountain biking it's a, or e-bikes is a problem with like society and hopefully like mountain biking can bring those people up rather than um mm-hmm. encourage like bad trail etiquette i'd say yeah yeah well and and it's interesting because downhill has traditionally been uh a, a tough sport to get into i mean you know you got to have access to good trails you know with elevation the bikes are not cheap um but yeah it sounds like especially through your current fundraiser um seeking to address you know parts of that challenge can go a long way and and like you said the more people were able to try it uh the the more competition there's going to be and people are making each other better all the time and it does seem like um today yeah maybe younger riders do have some advantages um over over the riders in the past which is cool to see so i want to ask you about crashing how do you feel about crashing is that just part of the job as a, a downhill mountain biker or is it something that you actively try to avoid Um, I would say both. (laughs) I, I definitely crash a lot. Like as a downhill rider to find the edge, you have to go past it and crash. Mm -hmm. Like if you never Mm -hmm. crash, you're probably not going fast enough, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you have to like do super dangerous. Like there's places where you can push the limit and there's places where you know to stay away from it. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely part of the territory. And of course I wish I didn't crash so much. Like I heard a funny quote that the difference between bravery and stupidity is the outcome. And that's so true. Like you could yeah. lay it on the line and it goes well and you're like, Oh, he's a legend. Or you could do mm-hmm. the same thing and have a huge injury and people are like, Oh, that was so stupid. Why did you yeah. do that? So yeah, uh, it's tough to like weigh up those risks and, hindsight's always 2020 but um i think like as i get older i kind of just look at it more as like i don't take as many risks away from racing Mm -hmm. and try to like it's hard too then if you don't to like step into that zone where if you're like if your mindset is to always just be committed and ride the gnarliest line and don't be intimidated by features Mm -hmm. then it's easy to carry that into the race weekend but if Mm -hmm. you when you're just practicing a training a trail riding and you like kind of back off of certain things and save it for the race, it's, Mm -hmm. it's harder to turn that around and then Mm. be able to step up and do dangerous things or, or yeah, that's like dangerous, but just like higher, higher risk moves on the racetrack. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know, man. It's like a, it's a fine balance. Um, (laughs) and 
yeah, you, I mean, it's just, like I said, it's part of the sport. You're not going to be a pro downhill mountain bike rider and not have injuries. It's just mm-hmm. kind of unheard of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of us have heard the phrase too, that if you're not crashing, you're not learning. And I mean, that's essentially what you're saying is you have to ride up to the edge and figure out where that edge is. Um, and it sounds like too, part of it is you just have to be okay with that, with, you know, the potential consequences for it. And I'm sure that's one of the things that makes you such a successful athlete, because most of us aren't willing to go to that point, right? We're not willing to like, no, yeah, there's, there's a good chance I'm going to crash. Um, but I have to, that's like part of, of racing. So do you have any tips for at least avoiding serious injury when you do fall? Like, is there, can you like learn to fall and to crash safely ish? Yeah, I think there's definitely somewhat of a technique to crashing. Like if you watch slope style riders or free ride guys, they are like so good at dismounting the bike and like getting mm-hmm. out of it easily. But mm-hmm. I think it's like comes as it's a lot of body awareness and like it's almost just second nature to them to be able to do that. And I look at that mm-hmm. as like being way above what I could do. But when mm-hmm. you when you do crash a lot, like you kind of learn to like a big thing is like to not let go of the bike. And and that's that's weird because it doesn't apply to every situation. I don't want to tell somebody mm-hmm. like hold on to their <laughs> handlebars yeah. and auger themselves into the ground in a situation they, they didn't need to. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, like if you take your hands off and put them out, you're going to break your wrist or break a hand mm-hmm. or something like that. And most of the time, like riding a bike out is going to be the better move. Like if you go back and watch um, Loic Bruni, he has a video on his Instagram from World Champs. This was like, six weeks ago now um but he like had this gnarly move where he almost had a huge wreck and just hang hung Mm -hmm. on to the bike and kind of rode it out to like a really safe place and then crashed so wow many times like not jumping off or like not putting your hand out is gonna be a better move like Mm -hmm. break ankles and wrists and stuff when when you try to like dismount at high speed so yeah, I'd say that helps. And then like wear like protective gear. Like I always wear a chest protector mm-hmm. and elbow pads and knee pads. And mm-hmm. in general, like if you're gravity riding, I would say like knee pads are pretty good idea. They make some mm-hmm. light ones for enduro riding and trail riding that don't inhibit you that much. And I don't know, it just seems like I'd almost, and don't take this literally, but I'd almost rather wear knee pads than a helmet because like I'm way more likely to like crash my knee or do it way more often. And it's rocky out here. So, um, for sure, like I'm going to wear knee pads whenever I even trail ride. And then, Mm. yeah, making sure you have like a good safe helmet. Like that's not something to skip on. Um, and making sure that if you do crash in your helmet, like get it replaced, it's not something to mess around with. Um, a lot of people are in favor of with full face helmets, neck braces. I don't wear one because it's difficult to move in it and mm-hmm. almost feel safer having full mobility than, than having that brace. But I would never like advocate for somebody to not use a piece of protective gear if they feel comfortable in it. So mm-hmm. yeah, just making sure that like, yeah, if you're going to go out there and take the risks, like, and, and it's easier too to commit to stuff when you know that you've like checked all the boxes of being prepared to do it. If you're like mm-hmm. underprepared and half committed, then you're going to have a way more likely chance of getting hurt than if you're like, 
you understand the risk you're you're taking you're you're jumping into it wholeheartedly and you're prepared as you can be then most of the time it's going to go as as well as it can yeah interesting well speaking of being prepared i'm curious to know what your preparation looks like for world cup season and you know i'm sure for a lot of like cross-country riders they're like oh those downhill guys like they just go downhill like they don't they don't really need to do much to get ready for that but i'm sure there is a lot that goes into it so can you tell us like just kind of in general what does like strength and endurance training look like for a downhill racer Yeah, it's funny. Most people think downhill riders are just drinking and smoking and <laughs> sending themselves down the mountain, but it's right. it's far from that. I mean, maybe 20 years ago um, that you get away with that. There's some wild men, but these days mm-hmm. it's like it's uh, it's very calculated. I'd say downhill is like is a short race, so all the World Cups are mm-hmm. around three minutes long. Some of them up to like four, but they're kind of in that range, so it's an all out sprint. Um, and there's huge G forces on the track. So you can't really afford to be like efficient or like be mm. soft through a big impact. Like you have to mm-hmm. be strong enough to hit whatever you want at full speed as hard as you can. So there's a lot of strength involved in it mm-hmm. and, and a lot of the moves. Um, so like a lot of the, when, when you get to the, to the specific, prep for world cup it's a lot of heavy weightlifting, um a lot of short sprints um short interval training mm-hmm. um it's it's kind of similar to like what a track rider would do i guess just based mm-hmm. on the nature of the like the distance of the race and what's being asked of the body um mm-hmm. so that that would be like the the peak of it and then like it's like anything you you kind of do with base training or do like foundation work to prepare you like you can't just step into doing a maximum squat like you have Mm. to like at this time of year like it's been three weeks i guess in snowshoe and this week i'm definitely had two weeks of doing nothing but this week i'm kind of getting back (laughs) into some very easy movements that are like foundational to build up my body to being able to get ready to do like those heavy lifts so say like do Mm. like two months of that sort of stuff and it's kind of nice to, to get back to it because you can correct some bad habits and like imbalances that you have in your body. You can kind of try to work those out as best you can. Everybody has mm-hmm. them. And, and riding downhill as well, like you always ride one foot forward. So I find that like my pelvis is slightly shifted and like my body is developed on my back more mm-hmm. on one side than the other because you're constantly mm-hmm. in this position that's like staggered stance. So you don't want to like go too like I've tried to like go too far to correct those balances and it's it's almost worse like I've had like a ton mm. of back pain trying to like straighten that out, but when it's just like the way that it naturally is, you kind of have to accept some of it. But like when you have an injury to a shoulder or something, trying to get them both pushing evenly and trying to get like both your knees and ankles like feeling good, that's like kind of like the time to do it this time of year and and just build the platform, and like some of it gets to be pretty hard like a lot of the foundational stuff is um yeah builds on itself and then gets you ready to be able to do the heavier lifts and the more intense like all out max power stuff that you do before Mm. the season kicks off yeah 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I think part of it too, you know, this this was kind of a revelation for me going to the World Cup and you know, we're used to seeing like the photos and videos of downhill riders like yourself, you know, you're fully suited up pads, you know, like baggy pants and baggy jersey and you know, when when you take all that off, it's like you can't tell the difference between the cross country and the downhill athletes in a lot of cases. I mean, I was actually surprised at that, you know, thinking that the downhill riders were like, you know, bigger, like, yeah, more, more muscular, but it's really, yeah, it's really hard to tell the difference. And both disciplines seem to require kind of the same endurance and strength, uh, which, which is really interesting to me. So you've, yeah, I agree. I think that in some ways the XC is, yeah, what's required is a lot different than the downhill, but, um, Mm -hmm. Lately, like a lot of our tracks are so steep, like the consistent grade is, is very steep on most of the World Cups that being light is super helpful for controlling speed. Like more races hmm. in the past couple of years have been almost no pedaling and, and not really much generation of speed. It's more controlling mm-hmm. of speed with braking, pressuring the uh. bike at the right times and if you're lighter, it's like easier to come into sections faster and then get the bike slowed down for a turn and to like be lighter Mm. through big compressions. Like it's almost easier as a smaller rider to do that sometimes. So, um, yeah, you see a a good portion these days, like back, like Greg Menard is huge. Steve Pete was big dude. And like those guys big Mm -hmm. and strong can like generate speed and carry momentum. And the tracks were just different 10 years ago than they Mm. are now. So, um, they almost suit like a small rider. It's more nimble and, um, yeah, can, can break more rather than generate speed more. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I've got one last question for you. And obviously there's a lot of really great parts about traveling the world to race your mountain bike. You get to go to a lot of cool places, ride great trails on awesome bikes. I'm curious to know what's the worst part about having to travel to race your mountain bike. Um, I would say like just the hassle of traveling, like a (laughs) lot of times to go to an event, it's like a day of your life gone. Right. Um, sometimes too, cause like you gotta get packed and then like the, like a lot of times we'll fly to a race on a Monday spend like the whole Monday, um, getting ready, going to the airport, packing, like, it's not really a day you're going to do much else. And then your flights overnight and you get into Europe the next day in the afternoon. And it's like that day's shot as well. (laughs) So you just lose a lot of time, I'd say traveling and it's exhausting. Like a lot of the races we go to over there, like we'll fly to Europe and back five times a year. And you get there the week before yeah. the race and try to like, I'm pretty good at getting back on onto the time zone, but it's still like, it's not the most restful thing to do the week before. Mm-hmm. Like if you had a big race, you probably wouldn't skip a night of sleep and go to bed six hours earlier and wake up six hours earlier than you normally do mm-hmm. like leading up to your event. So we yeah. have to do that traveling and that's kind of a pain and makes it difficult. Um, just like breaking everything down into your gear bag and your bike bag and traveling Mm -hmm. again, like it's kind of a pain, but, um, yeah, 
I, dude, I can't complain about it. I get to go to cool places. I get to go to ride at some <laughs> awesome spots. Um, and if I wasn't doing it professionally, I'd probably like be working to save money to go there on my holiday. So, um, I definitely yeah. have no ground to complain about having to go to these events. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Such a positive attitude. And yeah, obviously you're a great inspiration to a lot of riders and, uh, yeah, we wish you the best success and, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, you can head over to nicomalali.com to purchase this year's bike giveaway fundraiser poster to help get more kids on bikes. And you should also follow Nico on Instagram at Nico Malali, and we'll have a link to his profile in the show notes. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.